Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Once upon a time, and really not that long ago, it was illegal, criminal, in fact, to be anything other than heterosexual. Any hint that you may be something other than straight could get you into all sorts of trouble. And frankly, career suicide was the least of your worries. In 1895, the famous English playwright Oscar Wilde was put on trial for homosexual practices, whatever that was. He was found guilty and sentenced to two years in jail. He never recovered from the ordeal and died soon after his release. In 1959, Liberace, the famous pianist, sued the London Daily Mirror for libel for implying that he was gay. It went to trial, and on the stand and under oath, Liberace stated that and this is 1959, remember, he had never indulged in any homosexual practices. The judge believed him, and he won $24,000. In 1982, a former male bodyguard sued him for palimony, and this time Liberace had to pay out $95,000 from his bank account. And finally, in 1987, he died of AIDS, and the Daily Mirror came calling, looking for a refund of their $24,000. And look at Elton John. Despite the fact that he married a woman in 1984, the rumors of his homo and bisexuality helped erode his fan base in the late 1970s. He had to hide it for decades, something that took a serious emotional toll. When you put everything into this kind of context, you can see how far things have come today. If someone comes out, the admission is greeted by, well, a shrug. It's like, okay, cool, whatever. And not only that, but sexual orientation is now protected by law in much of the world. In many places, the law treats anti-gay and sexist comments in the same way other laws treat racist and anti-Semitic insults. Say something homophobic in France, and you could end up with 12 months in the clink, plus the equivalent of a $75,000 fine. But it wasn't always this way, including in the world of rock, which was supposed to be so progressive and liberal and tolerant. Here are some stories of brave people who took a lot of arrows for who they were. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Sing if you're to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Hey, sing if you're to be gay. Sing From February 1978, about a decade after homosexuality was decriminalized in the UK, that's British songwriter Tom Robinson with Glad to be Gay. It is impossible to overstate how controversial that song was when it was released back in 78. Tom has quite the history. 
When he was a teenager, he was sent to a special home for maladjusted boys. Turns out that there were similar maladjusted boys there with him, and he was able to come out. Robinson originally wrote the song in 1976 for a gay pride parade in London, and his inspiration was the Sex Pistols and the in-your-face, tell-it-like-it-really-is attitude of punk songwriting. It became the gay national anthem of the UK and is still considered to be a landmark song in the history of LGBTQ music. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this program is dedicated to those who weren't afraid of admitting their sexuality when society wasn't ready to hear it. And let me start by posing this question. You know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. What do the following people have in common? Tchaikovsky, Handel, Schubert, George Gershwin, Beatles manager Brian Epstein, Freddie Mercury of Queen, B-52 singer Fred Schneider, Morrissey, punk legend Bob Mould, and Michael Stipe of R.E.M. Okay, here are a few more. Pioneering rock guitarist sister Rosetta Tharp, Janis Joplin, Joan Jett, Melissa Etheridge, Tegan and Sarah, St. Vincent. All of the above, and many, many, many more, identify as gay or at very least bisexual. Music can be a very powerful thing when it comes to changing the world. Rock has been used to spread political and social messages. It has been used to enlighten, to educate, and to motivate. LGBTQ musicians have not only played a big part in breaking down barriers faced by non-hetero people everywhere, but a number of high-profile, highly influential alt-rock pioneers have been part of this community too. And that's what the show is all about, recognizing the contributions and sacrifices made by various LGBTQ musicians during the era when you just couldn't talk about who you loved. Who was the first rocker to come out of the closet? Well, quite possibly this guy. Little Richard was not only one of the first rock and roll stars, but he was also one of the first black rock and roll stars. But in 1957, right in the middle of a tour of Australia, he had a crisis of faith after, in his words, dreaming of his own damnation, much of which had to do with his closeted gayness. He quit the music business for five years and never really recovered the heights that he enjoyed in the middle 1950s. The next major coming out was David Bowie in 1972. He had been attracting sporadic attention since 1964 when he appeared on British TV defending the right of a man to have long hair. He was the spokesman for an organization known as the International League for the Preservation of Animal Filament. He was just 17 at the time of this TV appearance. Long-haired men, you've got to have your hair, what, nine inches long before you can join? Well, I think we're past that over now. Have you? Yes. Now, exactly who's being cruel to you? Well, I think we're all fairly tolerant, but for the last two years we've had uh, comments like, darling, and uh, can I carry a handbag thrown at us? I think it's just had to stop now. But, but does this surprise you that you get this kind of comment? Because you're, after all, you haven't got really rather long hair, haven't you? We have, yes. Yeah, it's not too bad, really. No, I like it, and I think we all like long hair. And um, we don't see why other people should persecute us because of this. But the best was yet to come. In January 1970, Bowie became one of the first pop stars to be interviewed by Jeremy, which was a gay magazine. The article had nothing to do with his sexuality, but the very fact that he appeared in a gay mag was pretty radical. Remember, just three years earlier, you could be sent to prison in the UK just for being gay. Ten months later, a lot of people really freaked out when a long-haired Bowie appeared on the cover of an album called The Man Who Sold the World. 
He was wearing a long, flowing blue dress, a man's dress, according to Bowie, designed by a man called Mr. Fish. To this point, this was the most feminized image a rock star the world had ever seen. Some stores were so outraged by this that, believe it or not, they refused to stock the album. And this is why you might find copies with a completely different cover. The record also didn't sell very well. In fact, Bowie moved less than 1,500 copies of The Man Who Sold the World in America between November 1970 and June 1971, mainly because of the dress. Such was the state of the world back then. Today, though, the album is considered the point where Bowie's artistic growth began to blossom. This is where he began to find his sound. And in the opinion of many, this is when the Bowie we really know really began. The real shock from Bowie came a couple of years later, January 22, 1972. He gave an interview to the NME, one of Britain's big weekly music tabloids. And let me quote, I'm gay and I always have been. Wow. It was all a publicity stunt, but the effect of those seven words was incalculable. Bowie's Ziggy Stardust character also offered hope. Ziggy was this weirdly androgynous maybe bisexual creature who wore makeup and glitter and did all kinds of lewd things on stage, like simulating oral sex on his guitarist, Mick Ronson. Bowie wasn't really gay, or at least not 100% gay, and never had been. But after January 1972, it didn't matter. He gave hope to closeted people across the UK, heck, around the world. Did this make Bowie the first openly gay rock star? Well, not really. Well, okay, well, what about Lou Reed? Let's examine that. When Lou Reed was a freshman at New York University, his parents were quite alarmed at what they thought were antisocial tendencies. Some stories, many refuted by Lou's sister, say that the concern was that Lou was tipping towards homosexuality. So what did they do? They sent him for electroshock therapy. This was the late 1950s, and there was a theory that homosexuality could be cured with the right treatment, which in this case involved attaching electrodes to your head and jolting your brain with electricity. No wonder Lou resented his parents for the rest of his life. Through the late 60s and early 70s, Lou was the leader of the Velvet Underground, which might have been the world's first true alternative band. A lot of their songs were pretty kinky, delving into some weird sex and drugs and rock and roll. By 1972, Lou had left the Velvet Underground and had become very, very glam. He started wearing more S&M leather gear. He bleached his hair blonde and began wearing black fingernail polish. Even though he married a woman in 1973, many people presumed that his gayness was the real thing, especially after he had a hit song that name-checked some real-life characters in Andy Warhol's circle. There was Holly Woodlawn, Candy Darling, and Jackie Curtis, all drag queens. Little Joe was Joe D'Alessandro, a gay actor. And Sugar Plum Fairy was another gay actor named Joe Campbell. This song, surprisingly, shockingly, was a major top 40 hit and a landmark in popular culture when it came to portraying sexuality and gender roles. Remember, this got on the radio with all these lyrics in 1972. But she never lost her head, even when she was given head. She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. And the so, was Lou Reed gay? Probably bisexual. 
just like Bowie. And Little Richard admitted to being something after all his early success. But we still have to ask this question. Who was the first rock singer to admit being 100% gay from the outset? The answer is a guy by the name of Joe Bryath. If you haven't heard the name, it's because for a long, long time, his existence was basically whitewashed from rock history. His real name was Bruce Campbell. He was a member of a forgotten California band called Pigeon. Then he got into musical theater, performing in productions of Hair. He was also a part-time drug addict and occasional rent boy. That didn't stop a manager by the name of Jerry Brandt from striking a deal with Elektra Records for $500,000, a huge amount of money at the time. Joe Bryant's debut album was recorded with help from Peter Frampton and John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. And to launch the record, Elektra paid to have a $200,000 billboard of a nearly nude Jobriath right in the middle of Times Square. Full-page ads appeared in the New York Times and Rolling Stone and Vogue and even Penthouse. Another $200,000 was spent on a stage production that was supposed to open at the Paris Opera House. Props included a 40-foot model of the Empire State Building designed to represent, uh, uh, yeah, one of those. And in interviews, Joe Bryant referred to himself as a true fairy. That's a quote. But it all came crashing down. The Paris shows never happened, and after two albums, Joe Bryant disappeared. He bounced between L.A. and New York, not really doing much of anything, including music, because of an ironclad 10-year contract to Jerry Brandt, and they weren't talking. By the early 80s, his bathhouse habits had caught up with him, and Joe Bryant contracted AIDS. He died on August 3, 1987, one week after that 10-year contract expired. It's only now, and thanks to a contingent of fans who discovered him after his death, a contingent that includes Morrissey, by the way, that Jabriath is being acknowledged for his contributions to music. This is a sample of his first album, a self-titled release from 1973 that featured contributions from Peter Frampton. This is called Take Me, I'm Yours. Jobriath, the world's first openly gay and genuinely gay rock star. And he was the first gay singer to be signed to a major record label. If you want to learn more, there's a great documentary called Jobriath AD. Highly recommend it. There were other musicians singing about gayness. There was a British folk rock group called Everyone Involved, who sang a few pro-gay songs as early as 1972. Chris Robeson released a song in 1973 called Looking for a Boy Tonight. In 1975, there was a German band called Flying Lesbians. Then there was Steve Grossman, an openly gay folk blues singer who was around in the 1970s. 1978 marked the founding of the San Francisco Gay Lesbian Freedom Band, which billed itself as the first openly gay musical organization in the world. Still, most of this music was safely closeted away from mainstream eyes and ears. It took a special kind of musical revolution to open things up. How punk rock helped gay rock in just seconds. This is a look back at some of the early pioneers of LGBTQ rock, people who risked so much just because of who they were. One of the great things about the original punk rock era of the 1970s was the concept that music belonged to everyone and that anyone should be able to make music. Things like age, background, class, ability, gender, and sexual orientation shouldn't matter. If you had something to say with music, then damn it, you should be able to say it. Pete Shelley was a fan of the Sex Pistols and leader of the Buzzcocks. As bisexual, he loved the fact that he was able to write and sing about anything he wanted. 
This is from 1977. There were plenty of punk performers who enjoyed the sexual liberation of the 1970s. There was the New York Dolls, the first group to wear makeup and spandex on stage. They never spoke of their sexuality, but were only too happy to let people make assumptions. There was Wayne County, the New York punk scene fixture who went all the way and had surgery, transitioning to become Jane County. And it wasn't just in the big cities. Down in Athens, Georgia, a group called the B-52s was starting to attract attention. The singer, a guy named Fred Schneider, was gay, and so was guitarist Ricky Wilson. And then there were popular one-hit wonders like this. Elton Motello wrote this song about a 15-year-old boy's relationship with an older man. Risky, right? But then the older dude rejects him for a woman. This was a radio hit in 1978. Jet Boy, Jet Girl, originally done by Elton Motello and covered by other punks and new wave bands around the world. Some were gay, while others just liked the shock value of doing a song like that. Another band we should mention is Big Boys. They were a punk band from Texas, Austin, but, you know, still Texas, who have largely been left out of a lot of rock history. But if you go deep into skate punk, you will find their name. Big Boy largely founded that sound, skate punk, starting back in around 1978. Ask the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Sonic Youth about them, and they'll go on and on about Big Boys. Their lead singer was Randy Biscuit Turner. He was out, and he was proud of it. Let's talk about the relationship between rock and sex for just a second. From the very beginning, rock has essentially been sex and rebellion set to music. Punk became the antidote for the preening and swaggering of mainstream rock in the 1970s. And then, in the late 1970s, we saw something called New Wave, the descendant of punk, a genre that also embraced the idea of anything goes. And New Wave also took on its own sense of theater. The goal was to shake people up. But instead of using aggression and violence and leather jackets with safety pins and swastikas, the tools were costuming, makeup, and expressions of sexuality. A lot of new wave bands took a lesson from the campy gay elements of disco. Literally hundreds of technopop bands adopted effeminate or at least androgynous looks. Some of these performers, such as Boy George, were in fact gay. Others, like Depeche Mode, were presumed to be gay thanks to the clothes, the hair, and the makeup. Many fans found these attitudes to be refreshing and liberating. Others found it disgusting, especially among some of the hardline rock fans who found it hard to stomach those weird-looking people with synthesizers who obviously weren't straight. Somehow, though, they completely missed Rob Halford and Judas Priest. But anyway, despite those attitudes, gay-oriented music continued to filter into the mainstream. One of the first openly gay alt-rock role models in the world was a woman and a Canadian. Carol Pope fronted Rough Trade, a Toronto group whose very name was a term from gay subculture. Carol was extremely upfront and extremely suggestive when it came to sex. She was like, yeah, I've got different ideas about sex. You want to make something out of it? What made Carol even more interesting was the fact that she was making these statements and having success in what was perceived to be dull, boring, conservative Canada. Imagine the shock of people. When this song showed up on Top 40 AM radio back in 1980, it was scandalous. Fascinating. Is he screwing with her? What's her 
Carol Pope made a serious impression, not just with that song, but everything else she did with Rough Trade. Here was a woman being totally upfront about being a lesbian. Who was doing that in the early 80s in the world of rock? Pretty much no one. When we come back, more acknowledgments of brave, groundbreaking LGBTQ performers from those early days. There were two more acts I want to acknowledge with this history of early LGBTQ pioneers in the world of rock. And this is where we finally get to Frankie Goes to Hollywood. They were from Liverpool, and most of the members were regulars at a club called Eric's. The beginnings of the band go back to 1980, and the frontman was Holly Johnson, an out gay man whose real name was William. But when he was in high school, he adopted the name Holly after the transvestite Holly Woodlawn mentioned in Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. He was also a huge David Bowie fan. It's a bit murky, but it is said that every member of the band was gay. It's hard to determine the truth because so much surrounding Frankie Goes to Hollywood was pure hype. Holly joined Frankie in 1982, and within months, the group had a candidate for a debut single. It was a song called Relax. This one song encapsulated so much of the Frankie hype. Stories of drugs and anonymous bathhouse sex. The newspaper ads for the record featured Holly in a sailor's cap and a leather vest with the caption, All the nice boys love sea men. Yeah, we see what you did there. And in 1984, this song had everybody talking, especially after it was banned by the BBC for, quote, obscene homoerotic overtones. It all began with an on-air diatribe by DJ Mike Reed. That, of course, is just what the single needed. Things had been a bit sluggish up until this point, but a BBC band? Boom! Up the charts it went, all the way to number one. It's now one of the most recognizable songs of the entire 1980s. There's one more band I want to mention before we wrap things up, and that's Bronski Beat. They were a synth rock trio from Glasgow, a pretty bleak place in the early 80s and mid-80s, and a tough place to be openly gay, as all three members of the band were. But that didn't stop them. Bronski Beat started out playing local arts festivals and quickly grew annoyed with how sanitized and safe other gay performers were playing things. Their thing was to write honest songs about being gay, the politics involved, the social challenges, and the abuse the LGBTQ community faced. It took them all of nine gigs to get a record deal with London Records, and they hit it out of the park with their first single. It was called Small Town Boy. Powerful stuff. The melody and the beat sucked you in. But then you started to realize what the message was within the song. It told the story of a young gay man leaving his family and his hometown because he just didn't fit in or wasn't wanted. The video was also very powerful. You couldn't help but feel terrible for the character played by singer Jimmy Somerville, who, by the way, experienced the same sort of things that we see in the video, the bullying, the estrangement from family, and the rejection. Despite its controversial themes, Small Town Boy became a top 10 hit in Canada, the UK, Australia, France, Italy, the Netherlands, and more. Interestingly, it only managed to reach number 48 in the US. Like I said at the beginning of the program, 
It wasn't all that long ago that if you were gay, lesbian, trans, queer, two-spirited, or bi, you had to keep it to yourself. Coming out meant familial, social, and career suicide. Not so anymore, for the most part. In fact, there are some serious academic studies on how sexuality has affected music through the ages. Nadine Hubbs, a professor of music and women's studies at the University of Michigan, has a book called The Queer Composition of America's Sound. She says that many of America's biggest classic composers, from Leonard Bernstein to Aaron Copland, were not only gay, but that their gayness can be heard in their music. Now, this show is far from being the definitive history of LGBTQ people in the world of rock. There are some very thick books written on the subject, and if you're at all interested, you should source them out. There's also been much written on the disco scene, on metal and punk as it relates to this community in places around the world. The people we talked about on this program put themselves out there in various ways, often risking everything by doing so. It was a huge, huge gamble and sometimes a very big sacrifice. But our music and our society is better for it. If you want more ongoing history, there are hundreds of programs available as podcasts. They're all free on all the various platforms. We can meet up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. And don't forget to visit my website, which is updated with music news and information every day at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Oh, an email? Send anything to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.